Today we're starting a, a two-week series, just two weeks. I wish we could spend uh, more than that, but two weeks on dating and marriage. Um, the reason why we're only going to spend a couple of weeks is because uh, Lent starts in three weeks. And for the season of Lent, we have an exciting sermon series uh, that we've been praying over, that we've been preparing uh, to lead our church through as we uh, approach Easter, as we expect uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ once again uh, as the church. But for the next two weeks, I do want to focus on dating and relationships. And I know I say this every time I start a new series, but this is probably the most important series I could preach at Cornerstone. And the reason why is because so many of you, nine out of every ten of you, I think, here at our church, are single. You're not married yet. And the person you choose to marry will be, that decision will be probably the second most important decision that you will ever make in your entire life. If you make a good decision with this, then your life will be on a good course and a good trajectory. And it will be filled with joy and happiness. But if you make a, a poor decision in this area, one that does not honor the Lord, one that does not have His blessing and guidance, your life will be filled with pain, suffering, and hurt. It can be redeemed by the cross of Christ. Absolutely, I believe that. I'm not saying these things. Absolutely, you can make the right choice and marry the right person, and it could be great for the first few years or the first few decades. And without trusting the Lord to bless that marriage, it could spiral off and become a nightmare, and vice versa. But what I'm saying is this. Next to your decision to follow and trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the second most important decision you can make is who you will marry. Who you will journey on the rest of this life together with. And so this series is for married people and it's for single people. It's for all of us because we all need, I need a reminder of what the Bible teaches. The Bible begins with a wedding and it ends with a wedding in Genesis and in Revelation it's the wedding between Adam and Eve how God makes uh, Adam and then he creates Eve and Adam says whoa flesh of my flesh bone of my bones now I'm complete and they're wed and in Revelation you see the wedding between Christ and his church the bride and the wedding between man and woman or Adam and Eve is really a reflection a dim one at that of our relationship, our marriage to Christ. And that is the reminder that we need. That is the hope that we need. That is the foundation we need to build all of our relationships on. Our friendships, our romances, our boyfriends and girlfriends, our fiancés, our husbands and wives, our children, our parents, on and on and on. And so that's what this series is about, and that's why it's so important. And if we don't have a balanced biblical view of marriage, we will either over-desire it and say, unless I'm married, I can't be happy. Unless I'm married, I can't be whole, I can't be complete. Or we will under-desire marriage and we will say, I don't want to get married. Why would I give up my independence? Why would I give up my identity? I don't want to merge with another person. I just want to be single. And some of you may have an under-desire for marriage. I don't want to get married. No, 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 I'm, I'm enjoying life. 
I'm my own boss. Some of you are over-desiring it. You're not happy. You can't smile. You don't have a positive outlook because you think that's the only thing that will give you joy and make you happy. The biblical view says, eh, to both. It actually gives a much higher view of what marriage should be. So, to begin this conversation, let's look at Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and the church in Corinth was really uh, very, it, I mean, it was uh, all over the place. Uh, it was dysfunctional, it was corrupt, it was a bunch of new converts uh, trying to follow Jesus the best that they could, uh, yet they were still sort of embracing a lot of their pagan past and their worldly views. And so Paul is constantly writing the church in Corinth because he loves them so much to show them the biblical Christ-centered gospel perspective in everything that they do. Their relationship with their neighbors, their work, their money, and marriage and relationships. And so here uh, we will begin in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning at verse 24. Paul writes, Brothers, each man as responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to. Now, about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. Can I get an amen? And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if, to, as if not engrossed in them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. This is the word of God. Can I just bless that real quick? Lord God, help us to understand this very confusing and, and, and uh, obscure passage. Lord, open our eyes, our ears, our hearts. Lord, help us to be focused in this time. Would your spirit uh, be our teacher, our guide, our tutor through these words? And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. What is Paul talking about here in 1 Corinthians 7? It's kind of strange, isn't it? This is the same Paul who later in Ephesians exalts a very high view of marriage and says that it is a reflection of the relationship between Christ and the church. And so why not? If that is the ultimate reflection and the ultimate display of marriage, then we should all get married so that we can experience that oneness, that, 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 that intimacy, that closeness that we also can experience with our Savior. But what's he saying here in, in 1 Corinthians 7? It sounds like he's saying something contradictory. He's saying, don't get married. If you're single, stay single. If you're married, it's okay. There's other, you know, just, it's going to be hard. But if you're single, stay the way you are. What's going on? Was Paul just having a bad day? I mean, did he, was he just, did he just break up with somebody? 
oh, you know, I'm going to write to the church. None of you should get married. I'm not getting married. You shouldn't get married either. Was he, you know, remembering that time that girl dumped him for the prom and, and went out with Thomas instead? You know, I was, you know, she, she dumped me for Thomas. And so, you know, oh, I'm going to, this is, I'm apostle of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I'm going to, yeah. no, I don't think he was having a bad day. Was it because he said the time is short? Was it because he thought that Jesus was literally going to appear any day now? If Jesus is coming next week, don't rush into marriage. No, spend this week ministering, witnessing, serving him, being an ambassador for the gospel. Well, well, maybe he did think that, but I mean, 2,000 years later, he still hasn't come. So we know that that too could not have been the reason why he was saying, don't get married because the time is short. The reason why Paul is writing this to the church in Corinth is because Paul has a very sophisticated view of time. Not like you and me. We're just biding our time until the Super Bowl, the game this afternoon. Until we go hang out with people, eat chips and wings and whatever and do all that. And then after the game, gotta go to sleep. Because why? Tomorrow I gotta go to work. I gotta go to school. I gotta put the kids to sleep. I gotta do this. I gotta do that. See, we have a very linear view of time. And for good reason, because that's the way we live. That's the way we've been raised. But Paul... Paul, the greatest biblical scholar, theologian of all time, views time in a sophisticated sense in that he sees time as an overlapping of two ages. Paul understands that right now, with the arrival of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the first time, that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. It started. Now the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here to rule and reign, which means that if we go to Christ in repentance, we can be forgiven and we can have new life and we can be whole and holy and justified in God's presence. And that there's a renewing and a redeeming and a restoring of not just our relationship with God, but our relationship with the world. If we come to the cross, then there's a newness, a new thing. We are new creatures. We are no longer old. We are new creatures, as he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But here, Paul is saying that the time is short because he views time as an overlapping of two ages. The kingdom of God is here, but the old age is also still here. You still live in a world with sin, death, and decay. You still live in a world where people get sick. You go to the doctor, you come back, and you've got cancer. You go to the bank, and you realize you have no money, and you, you're bankrupt. You're out on the street. You come home, and it's burned down. And we still live in a world where sin happens, where brokenness exists. And Paul understands that there's an overlapping of these two worlds. See, everyone thought when Jesus came that he came to sit on a throne. But what did he do instead? He went and hung on a cross. Jesus didn't come to hand out judgment. Jesus came to bear that judgment. And so Paul is saying, we still live in a world that has sin and brokenness and death and decay. But we're also part of a new age. The kingdom of God, the overlapping of the ages. It's already here, but not yet. It's already here, but not yet fully. And it will come fully, but not yet. Which means currently, presently, we still need to take care of life. So what Paul is saying here in this passage is, if you're single, stay single because that's where you are in this season of life. Embrace it as a gift. Embrace it as an opportunity. There are pros and cons to being single. You can serve the Lord. You can go wherever you want, whenever you want. You are unleashed, so to speak. 
But the cons are you're lonely. You don't have a best friend yet. You have a lot of friends, but you don't have your best friend yet, your spouse. When life is tough and, and hard and lonely, you don't have that person you can, you can go to at the end of the day and receive healing and ministry from. On the other hand, if you're married, there are pros and cons to that. Now you're twice as strong. You have a partner who is helping you to become more like Christ Jesus day by day every day. You no longer have to deal with the loneliness that single people have dealt with in the past. You have somebody that you can connect with each and every morning and each and every night. That person is there to know you, to love you, and accept you no matter what you do. And you have that intimacy and that oneness, but there are also cons to that marriage. It's hard. It's really, really, that's right, amen, and he's single. All right. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard. Um, my wife tells, uh, used to tell me that her, uh, uh, the, the, her college pastor would say marriage is basically one sinner plus another sinner equals two sinners. All right? You double the sin, you double the pride, you double the arrogance, you double the pain, you double the hurt, you double the rejection. I mean, two people coming together, yeah, they're in love, but it's, come on, it's just romance. It's just adrenaline. It's just hormones. When the honeymoon is over, as they say, what happens? The sinning and the warring and the factions begin. Marriage is hard work. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't get married. That's not what Paul is saying. If you're married, stay married. Because what Paul is saying is this. We live in an age where there's still sin, death, and decay, but the new age has also been inaugurated, which means we should have a future vision, a future view of what all things should be and become. And our future hope and our future joy and our future grace and our future happiness does not rest in this current evil age that is now passing away. But now all of that future joy and that future blessing rests with our eternity with Jesus Christ in heaven. And so Paul is saying, your attitude toward your social life, your material life, all the things that you're responsible for should be radically altered by this view that everything is pointing to an eternal presence and union with Christ. Think about that for a second. The way that you date, the way that you make friends, the way that you treat people, the way that you live married life together, it's not just so you can be fulfilled. It's not just so you won't have to be lonely. It's not just so you can double your income and have a bigger, uh, a nicer lifestyle or accomplish more or have a trophy husband or a trophy wife. But Paul is saying, your view and attitude to all these things should be affected by the certainty that our future joy is in our eternity with Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying. And so he's saying, if you're single, in this current season, your attitude should be, I'm single and I'm going to be single because Christ is my joy. Christ is my best friend. Jesus is my spouse. He is my lover. He is the lover of my soul. And if you're married, same thing. Because Christ is my ultimate joy. My spouse is my gift to make me more and more like Christ, my ultimate love and my ultimate joy. And if you put anything else in the place of Christ, you will crush that idol and that expectation because it will not be able to bear more than those. Why is this important to us? Why is it important for us to have this overlapping age view or this biblical, eschatological, this big picture view that Paul presents, it's because 
we are currently living in a culture that prizes love, sex, and romance as the ultimate thing in life. If you watch any chip flick romance, if you read a romance novel or watch a Disney flick or anything like that, basically the love story begins as two people are coming of age just as they meet each other. There might be a conflict or a challenge. It's overcome. And then as they fall happily in love, the credits roll. As, it's as if to say there's nothing more important in life than falling in love. Nothing more important. It tells us nothing about the, the person's path, uh, past, uh, the way that their character was developed, the way they became that person. It tells us nothing about their future, how they overcame their problems and their differences, how they started a family together, how they invested in their future together, how they raised their children together. It just shows us that falling in love is all that matters. It's all that you need. It's all that you want. It'll make you happy. In other words, we've idolized one anthropologist has said, and I believe he says it correctly, that we live in a culture now that no, no longer believes in eternal significance. We live in a culture now that doesn't believe in God. We live in a culture now that doesn't believe in the transcendence of this life or the transcendence of God. We are a world now that believes that when we die, we, we rot, we decay, that's it. We, we've just evolved into this species. And if that's the case, if there is no God, if there is no eternity, if there is no transcendent significance beyond this life, where do we get our significance? Well, one anthropologist says we now, instead of finding our significance, our eternal significance in God, now we put it in what he calls apocalyptic romance. If I marry the right girl, will be If I find the right guy, marry the right guy, the perfect him, everything else is great. And that's what we begin to exalt and worship because that's what Hollywood and the media portray. That's what every love story and love novel, romance novel portrays. And naturally, as a culture, we now seek our significance, not in God, not in Jesus Christ, but in love and romance. And what has happened is we've hijacked our own joy. We've hijacked our own fulfillment. And maybe it's not love and romance for you. Maybe you could care less for that. Maybe you're, you're, you're not romantic in that sense. Maybe for you it's, it's your, your income. Maybe it's your lifestyle. Maybe it's your GPA. Maybe it's something else. But unless it's Jesus Christ, that as a source of our eternal significance and identity, anything else we put in that place will fail us. And you can make all the money in the world and you'll realize it's still not enough. You can meet the most beautiful, fascinating person in the world. They can sweep you off your feet and you'll find out that they're still not perfect. And anything you try to put into that place will only be crushed by your impossible expectations for that thing or that person. That is the culture that we are. That is who we become. And that's why we need a biblical perspective of dating and romance. Or else you'll over-desire it or under-desire it. You'll want it too much as if that's the key to happiness, or you'll say, no, that's a curse. My independence is my identity, it's my chief prize, it's the best thing I can keep to myself. I'll just casually date. I'll just sleep around, I'll just pretend, I'll cohabitate, whatever you want to call it. That's not what the Bible teaches us, and that's not what the Bible 
Jesus shows us. In Ephesians 5, we're going to look at this in more depth next week. Paul gives us a picture of the marriage between Christ and his church. Jesus loved the church. He died for the church. The church has to serve Christ. It's this beautiful relationship. And every marriage is meant to be a reflection of that oneness with Christ. It's a full commitment. It is a surrendering of independence and it's saying, now I am dependent on you. It is a surrender of my identity and it's a merger of two identities. It's a surrender of your freedom. It's a sort of sacrifice of that. And it's a joining of two lives to serve one God, one King, and one Savior. That's the way Paul exalts the view of marriage. And if that is what marriage is supposed to be, then that view, that big picture view, that Paul says, time is short, keep your eyes on the big view. Paul is reminding his readers here in 1 Corinthians 7, hey, I know that you've got to take care of the here and now, but don't forget about the big picture, what's happening, what Jesus has come to start. It should not only affect the way you're married if you're married, it should affect the way that you're engaged if you're engaged. It should affect the way that you're dating if you're dating. And it should affect the way you're single if you're single. And all of your friendships. So let me give us some practical wisdom here. All right? I mean, what good is a marriage and dating sermon unless, okay, we got to go out and do some homework. Got to go out and practice this. Got to go fishing. All right? Well, let me give us some practical pieces to think about, Okay? C.S. Lewis uh, has a book called The Four Loves, and in it he talks about the four loves that are uh, talked about in the Bible. They're the four Greek words for love. They're the words storge, eros, uh, phileo, and agape. And storge is basically the love that we would uh, define as affection, something that makes me feel warm in my heart. Like I have storge for my favorite pair of jeans. When I put them on, I just, you know, no jeans fit me the way these jeans fit. And so I always, you know, as like my, or, or your pet, your animal, like your dog. Oh, Fluffy, I love you, you know. Storge, storge, storge. It's like a form of love, but it's really an affection. You know, honest taqueria is storge, okay? It's not agape, trust me, all right? And then you've got uh, eros, love, where we get our English word erotic, okay? This is the sexual, the sensual. Right? This is uh, uh, how we uh, express our libido. All right? Eros is that uh, erotic love, that sensual, the attractive, the appearance. Oh, you know, I'm looking for a supermodel husband, a supermodel wife. It, it, it's what our first impulse is, is when we look at something. And, and that feeling is not love at first sight. It's eros at first sight. Okay? And then there's the phileo, which is the brotherly love, the sisterly love. It's treating one another as brothers and sisters in Christ or in any other way. And then there's the agape love. And this is the unconditional love that God shows to his children, to his people. It's a divine love. Now, Lewis does this. He explains these loves in his book. But see, the problem with us in the church is that we flipped the priority of these loves. And I see this all the time. All right, we're all guilty here, including, I mean, I, I have to admit, I've done this as well. But we flipped the priority of these laws. Let me give you an example. When you come to into a room, let's say of, I don't know, 300 people, um, and uh, you're looking around, 
and you're like, who am I going to talk to today? I'm single, and I want to find me a mate, right? Uh, and you all do this. I know you do. You come here, and that's what you do. Um, and uh, what of those four loves do you put first? Well, almost all of us are looking for story pain. We come in. We're looking at somebody who, oh, wow, you know, I, that person, man, caught my eye, you know? You know, eye candy, whatever you want to call it. Not eyesore, eye candy, right? I, I could look at that person, like, all day, all day long. I could put them on my screensaver. I could put them on my phone wallpaper. I mean, I could just look at her face and just, wow, you know? And that's the storge. And it's also a mixture of arrows. Like, oh, wow, she is beautiful. He is, man, he's everything. He's hot. Look at him. He's handsome. He's cut. He's slim. He's... And that's what we're looking for. And so if you come into a room of 300 people, you are already sizing people up and you're filtering and you're screening. And you talk to the people who appeal to your sense of storge and arrows. Now, inherently, there's nothing really wrong with that. But that is not the biblical approach to what we should be looking for. Because it's external. Let me tell you, someone might have a lot of storge and arrows attraction today. But fast forward while they're time. And that stuff starts to go away. It does. It withers. At least in the immediate external sense. Okay? There's an inner beauty there that you still haven't met yet. That transcends time. That transcends age. But you haven't gotten there yet. In fact, it'll be hard to get there if your first priority is storge and arrows. Our culture prizes storge and arrows. It's like, hey, you know, why would you marry somebody unless you sleep with them first? You know, you've got to test drive. Right? You've got to try. You got to see if you're physically compatible. If you can really satisfy one another in the bedroom. Why don't you try living together? Just practice being married. And if it works out, then go get married. I mean, why risk it? I mean, I know so many people who've been divorced, or so many people who are married and are unhappy. Why would you do such a thing? And so, what do we do? We elevate the arrows and we say, hey, that person has to be. All of these external things. When in fact, we should begin with agape and phileo. Before I am my wife's husband, I am her brother in Christ. She is my sister in Christ. Before your boyfriend and girlfriend, you are brothers and sisters in Christ. God is our father, we are his children. And therefore, we should love one another as Christ has loved us. And we should extend, extend that godly sibling love and service and self-sacrifice to each other, to everyone, not based on their appearance or their earning power or their credentials or resume, their degrees, their job, the way they dress, the car they drive, none of those things, but simply because they are a child of God. And the agape love is the love that gives and gives and gives, even if it doesn't receive in return. Jesus gave us his life, knowing full well that many that come and go will reject him and refuse his love. And yet it was not conditional upon the majority of the people he died for accepting it. No, it was unconditional. He gave all of himself. And so that agape love that we extend to one another is to be able to say, I serve you, I love you, I support you, I encourage you before I go out with you. 
before I am exclusive with you, before I am intimate with you, before I touch you. It's all of those things. Because the touching and the going out and the exclusivity, that gets old quick. And if that's what the relationship is built on, trust me, that foundation will disintegrate in the blink of an eye. And all you're left with is bickering and fighting and resentment, trust me, and then eventually breakup and heartbreak or divorce. But if it's built on agape and phileo, there is an inner beauty. There is a heart that is willing to give and to serve. That is willing to forgive, to let go, and to extend the love of Christ in that relationship. So if those are the four loves and we're supposed to order them the right way biblically, what does that mean for us? It means three things, okay? We're gonna wrap it up here. It means first, work on your friendships. Invest in your friendships. Stop going out and looking for some romance, somebody who'll sweep you off your feet, somebody who, you know, is just eye candy. No, work on your friendship. Can this person be your best friend? And if you think so, marry them now. Say, we're getting married in a year. We're getting married in two. As soon as we're done with school, we're done with this or that. We're getting married because you are my best friend. You completely, complete. you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh and all that. Work on your friendships. Don't leapfrog that and just say, oh, let's just see if we like being together and we like, you know, holding hands and being intimate and then we can work on the friendship after. Don't short circuit your relationship with the opposite gender. Develop that friendship first. Which means when you go out with people, go out in groups. When you go out alone, you're just pretending. You're just trying to think of nice things to say, smart things. You're just selling yourself. But if you do it as friends, go out in groups. You know, just take off the mask, be yourself. Look for a friend. Build that relationship. If you're married, you're probably thinking, how does this apply to me? Of course this applies to you if you're married. Make sure your spouse is your best friend. If you have a best friend outside of your marriage, your marriage is dysfunctional because your spouse should be the only person in this world who you hold no secrets from. Your spouse should be the person who knows you better than anybody else in this world and can see right through you and you know what? Still love you and serve you and be with you. So we need to work on our friendships, whether we're single or whether we're married. And if you feel that that friendship is slipping in your marriage, what do you do? You work on that friendship. You work on that relationship. Spend more time together. Be intentional. Build the friendship. And if you're single, instead of being exclusive and just, you know, every once in a while, a guy comes up to me in church and he tries to impress me because I'm a pastor and says, hey, Pastor Eugene, I just want you to know that me and so-and-so are courting. They use the word courting. And I'm like, what does that mean? Do you, do you know what that, yeah, you know, I'm courting her for marriage. I'm courting her. You don't know what that means. You know what courting was? Courting was, back in the day, before you had a car or a bus or a train, all you had was your left and right two feet. You would go to a girl's house, 
you would sit down and have dinner with her family, and then you would watch the stars with the family, or sit on the front porch with the family, or watch TV with the family, and then you would say, good night, I'll see you tomorrow, and you would go home by yourself. That was courting. And if the family liked you, and you liked the family, and if the girl liked you, and you liked the girl, then, all right, let's get married. That was courting. What we do now is dating. It's what we do. We go to the house, and we don't sit down with the family. We say, hey, we'll be right back. And we go out and away, and we're private. Anyways, gosh, I have too much to say about that, but let me stop right now. Go to my blog this week. I will talk about this some more. I will just express every every thought that I forget to, to flesh out. Go to my blog this week, and I'll talk about it. I, there will be more. There will be more application. But work on friendship. Do it together with people. Can this person become my best friend? Because the essence of marriage is friendship at the end of the day. And if you're going to spend 50, 60, 70, 70 years together, Lord willing, with health and exercise and vitamins, <laughs> don't you want that to be the best 70 years of your life? Not, oh man, I've been married now. I mean, this year is my 10th year anniversary in just a few more months. My life now, we've been married 10 years now. We've known each other for like 10 and a half, right? <laughs> but, you know, we, we are, and I can say this because I think she's in this, we are best friends. We are closer than we've ever been. Do we have a perfect marriage? No, we fought like four times this week. But that doesn't mean we're enemies and we don't love each other. No, we're working out our differences and our sin. And every day we're saying, oh, I'm sorry, I forgive you. That's okay, it's my fault. No, it's my fault. Oh, and then, you know, and we're working it out. But we're best friends. And everything on my mind, I can tell her. I don't have to worry about judgment. Everything on her mind, she can tell me. She doesn't have to worry that I'm going to laugh at her or ridicule her because we're best friends. In fact, she even knows what I'm thinking before I say it most of the time. I still haven't figured out how she does that, but you can ask her. But we're friends. We're soulmates. Work on your friendships. That's step one. Okay? Step two. Look in the pool that God has given you. Okay? And look not for what the person presents externally, the way they dress, the way they look, the way they throw around their money or the way they throw around their influence. Look at their, their character. Look at their heart. Ladies, who are the guys here that you could look up to and say, that man is humble. Look at his humility. Look at how he takes every opportunity to lift others up and edify them. Ladies, if you marry a man like that, he will make you happy. Because he will not step on you, he will not treat you like an object, and he will never overcome you with his power, his pride, or his prestige. Look for character. Brothers, don't just look for a perfect tent. Don't just look for the most attractive girl who could be a trophy wife. No, no, no. Please don't look for that. Look for a godly woman. A woman who loves the Lord who lives a life of prayer, dependence on God, who also embodies humility and grace and elegance because she is a lover of Jesus like Mary, who sat at the feet of Jesus and listened to his words. Brothers, you marry, you marry a woman like that and you will be invincible because nothing this world throws at you will be able to, to defeat you because your wife will support you through everything. She will uphold you and protect you. Always encourage and edify you. So look 
for character. Now, again, if you're married, you're saying, okay, well, what if you're already married? It's too late. We've already signed the paperwork. You should do the same thing. You should do the same thing if you're already married. Look for the qualities in your spouse that are good and affirm those qualities. See, too often we're complaining about what? The things that we don't like. We nag. Why don't you do this? Why don't you do this? How come you're like this? How come you're like that? And it's usually like a hundred to one where, oh, you're so good at this, but you're so bad at this and this and this and this and this. In your spouse, look for those qualities, those qualities that you fell in love with and affirm them, encourage them, bless them, fan into the flame of those qualities so that they will grow in them and develop them. And every spouse has those qualities. If you're willing to take your eyes off your selfish wants and desires and look into the life and soul of another person, you should be filling that person's life with affirmation and compliments. You should continue to say, oh, you, I love it when you do this because you're so good at this. Or, this is why I love you because of the way you care for me. Or you're the best. You make this better than anybody. This, I could eat this for the rest of my life. Right? I could eat this for the rest of my life and, and not want anything else because you're the best. Affirm those qualities. Don't just look for, well, you know, did you, did you see what, what he did for, for his wife over there? Why can't, no, no, no. Look at what he does for you. Uh, honey, honey, did you see what she, you know, she got for her husband for her anniversary? No, no, no. Look at what your life got for you, gives to you. Don't look at the externals of other people and other couples and other relationships. Take what God has given you, that gift. Affirm it. Fan it. Bless it. Encourage it. Grow it. Cultivate it. Because it's for your mutual joy. So, one, develop those friendships with your friends and with your spouse. Two, look for character beneath the surface, among your friends, among the pool, and with your spouse. And thirdly and finally, develop your own character. Be the kind of person that you would want to marry. I'm looking for somebody who's holy. I'm looking for somebody who's humble. I'm looking for somebody who's gentle. I'm looking for someone who's kind. Will you become all of those things? Work on your own character. And this is a season, if you're single, to do that, to develop your character. So that when the Lord blesses you and brings someone into your life, you're ready to spend the rest of your life with. You can bless them and you can serve them. And that person can continue to develop your character. If you think you're all that and you're looking for someone to complete you, you're, you're, you're not. Trust me. You're not. We are all still a work in progress. And marriage is God's gift to us to make us more and more like Him. Marriage is not for our happiness. It is for our holiness. Marriage is not to complete us for ourselves, but it's to complete us to be more like Christ. Marriage is what teaches us how to love, how to serve, how to forgive. It's not about how to make me happy, how to meet my needs, and how to do everything I want you to do. No, marriage is meant to make us holy. The happiness will come because true happiness and true joy is found in Christ. And the happiness in Christ is only found when we are achieving holiness in His name.
If you're already married, again, same thing. Stop looking at all the faults and the, and the weaknesses and, and all the discrepancies in your spouse. Oh, when is she going to change? When is he going to change? Oh, you know, if I would have known this before, I never would have done this. You know, stop saying that. Look in the mirror. Know who you are. Recognize you're a sinner too. Sometimes I get into arguments with my wife. I'm like, you know, why doesn't she understand? Why doesn't she see things the way I see? I'm a pastor. She should see it the way. And then I realize, you know what? Who cares? I'm, I'm a sinner first. I'm wrong. I've got to submit. I've got to say I'm sorry. I've got to forgive. I've got to be forgiven. So work on your character in your marriage. And this is a lifelong process. This is what we're committed to until death we despair. In John chapter 4, Jesus is uh, at his best when he's loving on people who are unlovable by everyone else. And in John chapter 4, he comes to a well in the middle of the day and there's a woman there, a promiscuous woman. Don't know her name. Don't know anything about her. All we know is that she's been married and divorced five times and she's currently with a sixth man. And we do know that she's shamed by her community because she's... She's pulling water from the well when no one else does it because she doesn't want to be ridiculed, despised, made fun of. She's trying to hold on to that very little bit of dignity that she still has. And it's the best day of her life because that day at the well she meets Jesus. And Jesus is talking with her and what is he trying to do? He's trying to introduce her to her one true love. Jesus says, I can give you the water that if you drink you will never thirst again. She says, where can I get this water? And he says, go bring your husband. What? I thought we were talking about water. When do we start talking about love and marriage and romance? And Jesus says, go bring your husband. Actually, he's not your husband, is he? You've been married five times, divorced five times. The man you're with is not your husband. Why does Jesus go there? Because this woman, like so many of us, has idolized love and romance to the point where she believes that is her one true significance. I, I know I messed up five times. If this guy is the one, if this one is perfect, if this one can meet all my needs, Jesus says, you got to lay all of them down. Because when I become your greatest joy, when I become the lover of your soul, you won't need to elevate romance. You won't need to elevate marriage as your source of joy and happiness is this, because it'll be in me and my relationship with you. And then your marriage and your children and your job and your reputation and all of your responsibilities, those things, it's gravy. And you won't have to wake up each and every day waiting for happiness to come into your life that day through the through a personal relationship. You'll wake up every day and you'll go to bed every day with peace and joy knowing that you have it in Christ alone. And whether you're single or married, this applies. Your marriage will not improve and get better if you keep expecting your spouse to improve and get better. It will only improve and get better if, if your love for Christ deepens and matures together mutually. Because if you try to put your spouse in the place of Jesus, that person will let you down every single day. 
If you try to put your boyfriend or your girlfriend in the place of Christ, they will break your heart. But if Christ is your joy and the lover of your soul, then, as impossible as it sounds, you will be able to look into the crowd and you will see beautiful people everywhere. You will be able to, to cut through the superficiality that this world, this culture, splashes and throws upon us and force feeds us through the movies and Hollywoods and romance novels. And you'll be able to say, it's not the attraction, it's not the sex, it's not the money, it's the character, it's the heart, it's the patience, it's the holiness, it's the humility. Those things all transcend time and aging. And believe it or not, with those things, the external becomes so much more beautiful, so much more beautiful. And the only way you'll know is if you believe it and do it. you got to take my word for it, but it's not really my word, it's the Bible's. He'll be tempted to say, oh, but, you know, he has to be handsome. I know he's a jerk, but if he's handsome, you know, maybe his jerkiness, he'll grow up and mature. He won't be a jerk someday. Man, you're risking a lot of the line, sisters. Brothers, I don't care. I don't care if she doesn't love God. I can evangelize. I have Bible study with her. I can make her love God. Man, you are compromising a lot. I share this message in next week's message because I love you. And I want all of you to fall in love with God's gift for you, to live happily ever after. For my friends who are married, you, you know I love you. And you know that I'm praying for you. And you know that your marriage is hard, but you know if you've talked to me, you know me, my marriage is hard too. It's not easy. But we're in this together with Jesus' help. And that's what the Bible tells us. So let's have a kingdom perspective. Yeah, we live in a world that's broken and there's no one perfect who will fully meet our needs. But Jesus has come. And He has fully met all of our needs. And He is all that we need. And so now that we have Him and our eyes are fixed on Him, all of the discrepancies and the shortcomings in this life, He can help us. Father, we thank you that uh, you have given us your son and that through his death on the cross and his resurrection, that, Lord, our love for you and our love for Christ can be perfected and restored. And, Father, we pray that that would be the source of all of our relationships, of all of our love, of all of our romance, of all of our sex, of everything that we look for in that person that we know you ultimately give as a gift. Lord, whether we're single or whether we're married, Lord, would you give us the courage to live out the truth of your word each and every day? Don't just give us the courage. Give us the strength, God, because we, our flesh is weak. Our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. So help us to love our brothers and sisters, to serve our friends, to love our wives and our husbands, to serve them, to uphold them, to make them more beautiful and honorable and holy in your sight. We pray these things in Jesus' name.